There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. Suspended in time and space for a moment, your introduction to Miss Janet Tyler, who lives in a very private world of darkness, a universe whose dimensions are the size, thickness, length of a swath of bandages that cover her face. In a moment, we'll go back into this room, and also in a moment, we'll look under those bandages, keeping in mind, of course, that we're not to be surprised by what we see, because this isn't just a hospital, and this patient 307 is not just a woman. This happens to be the Twilight Zone. And Miss Janet Tyler, with you, is about to enter it. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema's Twilight Zone series. I'm your host Jimbo, and joined today once again from the Fifth Dimension. Oof. Greetings from the Fifth Dimension, everyone. Um, excited to get with uh, to get on this episode of Season 2, Episode Number 6, Eye of the Beholder. Yes, but who, but who are you? Who am I? I'm 80Z. Always <laughs> okay. coming from the fifth dimension to you all. Hopefully you're uh, all having a good day. Right. Today is um, episode is probably one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes of all time. It is personally one of my favorites of all time. So definitely when we do our year in review or even season review, this is definitely going to be one of the upper echelon episodes that I rank. Because um, this is one that has stuck with me since I was a kid. Uh, first time seeing it. Um, those of you that are of an older generation, there used to be a Twilight Zone marathon that used to run either on Labor Day or Memorial Day or maybe both. I can't remember. But I remember it would be just back to back to back for like 24 hours yep. of these episodes. And you and I was at my grandma's. I would just be hooked watching these. Yep. So, I remember. Um, so, 80s, this is going to be a heavy episode. Um, so why don't we go ahead and get started? Yeah, before we do that, I wanted to address a question that you asked um, previously. Um, I don't remember what episode it was. It might have been two or three episodes ago. But you had raised the question, because, in light of the fact that Rod Serling is now doing all of his narration on screen in Season 2, that was kind of uh, something that was new for uh, Season 2, uh, you had asked the question whether he paid himself or how he was compensated uh, for those on-screen appearances. I don't have the direct answer to that question, but I do have this, and I'll just read it. And this is from CelebrityNetWorth.com. It says, in 1959, Serling's best-known work, The Twilight Zone, aired on CBS. It was a five-hour series, which uh, he used his creativity to talk about things like racism, which we'll uh, touch on that today, actually, in this episode, sexism, and other social problems. CBS purchased the rights and ownership of The Twilight Zone in 1966. Now, get this, for $285,000, they purchased the rights. Uh, now, keep in mind, this is the internet. There could be some 
discrepancies, but I'm going on what CelebrityNetWorth.com says. This equates to about $2.3 million today. Mr. Sterling also gave up his rights to royalties from reruns with the sale. Yeah, I was like... Oh, I don't man. know that that might not have been the greatest deal, but uh, apparently it was yeah, it was good for him uh, in 1966, and uh, so yeah, that's the best I could come up with as far as compensation for Mr. Rod Serling. But anyway, all told, I think uh, Celebrity Net Worth said his uh, net worth was around 10 million dollars. Um, so I don't know what that equates to in today's dollars, but there you go. That's my best shot at answering your question. Good job. Good job. <laughs> So, uh, do you want me to just go ahead and launch in here to the eye? Launch on in. Okay. The Eye of the Beholder, The Twilight Zone Season 2, Episode Number 6. This was directed by Douglas Hayes, and it was written by Rod Serling. So, Rod is back to uh, writing um, these teleplays. It was produced by Buck Houghton. And, of course, the featured music, you should be familiar with this name. His name is Bernard Herman. Um, originally broadcasts on November the 11th, so Veterans Day 1960. Um, the total production cost for this episode was $48,599, which equates in our dollars to $487,316, about a 902% increase as far as inflation goes. And... One other thing that I wanted to touch on just as far as uh, an introduction goes was, and I got this from phrases.org, actually phrases.org in the UK, Um, the the phrase or the theme, well I guess it would be the phrase, the phrase beauty is in the eye of the beholder, Uh, this saying first appeared in the third century, but it was originally in Greek. It was actually the 3rd century B.C., and it did not appear in English in its current form in print until the 19th century. The person who is widely credited with coining the saying in its current form is Margaret Wolfe Hungerford, uh, who wrote many books under the pseudonym of the Duchess, and it's first found in her work called Molly Bond, B-A-W-N. And it was in 1878, there's a line, Beauty is in the eye of the, of the beholder, which is the earliest citation uh, that we can find for that actual full phrase. Now, there were other authors who used it, like William Shakespeare used it in a poem. Um, uh, I forget what century, was that like the 16th or 1500s that he used it? And there are other like forms um, that it was used earlier than the 19th century, but that was actually the first citation, this... Uh, the Duchess, if you will, she used it, uh, the full phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I'm sure in our trivia, we'll talk about the, the title of this episode, eye of the beholder. Well, the beauty is obviously dropped from the title, but, um, they actually had to adjust the, the title of the episode when it went through reruns because of some litigation problems. But I don't know if Jimbo has that in his notes or not, but, um, yeah, it was it was originally called the the Eye of the Beholder, right. but there was a lawsuit because some person. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, so here it is. Because CB, yeah, originally a the preceded the title until television producer Stuart Reynolds threatened to sue Rod Sterling for the use of the name because at the time he was selling an educational film of the same name to public schools. 
Reruns following the initial broadcast featured the title screen, The Private World of Darkness. So they did change the actual name. Right. I'm glad you had that information there. I remember reading about it or talking about it with someone, but yeah. So, Jimbo, you want to go ahead and take the cast next? Sure, Eric. Let me (laughs) unwrap this cast for you, (laughs) if you will. There you go. (laughs) Nice. So um, we have Maxine Stewart, uh, who played Janet Tyler under the bandages. So this is the first time that we see the main character basically be, be being played by two different people. Um, both uh, Janet Taylor, this is the one that's actually under the bandages before they unwrap the face. Um, she was probably most famous for being on Young and the Restless as Margaret for all of you soap opera fans. I'm sure Eric can attest to oh, yeah, the, love the soap, soap operas. operas of the 80s, 90s. <laughs> then you had uh, William D. Gordon, who was the doctor. Um, he was in a lot of TV shows, uh, most notably The Fugitive, Chips, Bonanza, uh, a lot of different ones. Uh, then you have Jennifer Howard as Janet's nurse. Um, she was in lots and lots of Perry Mason as well as several other TV shows. You have George Kemus, who was the basically the leader, the fearless leader. Uh, that's on the television screen. Um, he was in Zorro in 1958 as Roberto. You had Joanna Hayes, who was the reception nurse. Um, she was also in a bunch of TV shows uh, such as Dragnet, Thriller, a couple others. You had Edson Stroll as Walter Smith. He was in Snow White and the Three Stooges from 1961, <laughs> as well as uh, Mikkel's Navy Joins the Air Force, where he played Virgil uh, Edwards in 1965. And yes, probably the most famous actress on this episode is donna douglas mm-hmm. who plays janet tyler when she's revealed better known for ellie may clampett of the beverly hillbillies fame and the movie frankie and johnny the elvis presley movie where she played frankie oh yeah and of course we have the great rod serling playing himself as the narrator and the all righty i got a question for you now out of all of those names who do you think has the most credits out of all of those uh, actors uh, and actresses? Also, it's worth... You know what? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but also no, it's also worth pointing out that Joanna Hayes was the wife of Douglas Hayes, the director, so that's one little tidbit. If, if I had to guess, there's, there's two that I would say just because I have the star meter rankings on my paper <laughs> here. But but if I was going to say somebody, I would say Maxine Stewart, the lady under the bandages. Close. Um, She's number there, two. I, w- I know. I was reading something where um, she said that was she – they asked her, were you upset that you didn't get the – be the person outside of the bandages too? And she's like – no, she's like, you know, I, I could go in there and I could act under these bandages, she said, and I didn't have to look at anybody. I was basically mm-hmm. by myself just acting and feeling. Uh, she said, but I guess, you know, uh, beauty is beauty. They wanted somebody beauty. And she said, I don't I don't really care about that. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But I, if I have to guess, I'm going to have to say uh, Joanna Hayes. No, um, not Joanna no. Hayes. Uh, it was actually George Camus, the leader uh, on the big TV screen there. He had 155. You were right. Uh, with Maxine Stewart had 125, so mm. yeah, Joanna Hayes. Though oddly enough, uh, you know what threw me it was William Gordon, the doctor, was just in a Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room. He was George in Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room, right. and he was just the doctor's voice in this episode, which uh, 
And I got another... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll get to it. Um, let me go on with the plot or we'll never get through this. This, this is just juicy. It's got so much good stuff in it. Uh, the plot goes as such. Janet Tyler is in the hospital having undergone treatment to make her look normal. I'll put normal in quotations. It's her 11th trip to the hospital for treatment, and she is desperate to look like everyone else. Some of her earliest childhood memories are of people looking away, horrified at, by her appearance. Her bandages will soon come off, and she has only one hope, and that is her last treatment will have done the trick. If not, her doctor has told her she will be segregated with a colony of similar-looking people. All that to say that truth is truly in the eye of the beholder. Um, so there's your plot line. Um, Jimbo, let's go ahead and launch in, unless you have any other preliminary comments or trivia or something that uh, comes no, to mind. I, 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 I think as we go along um, with some of the dialogue of this episode, um, you were going to see a deeper mm, tone of things that Serling was trying to hint at, even though this is a Twilight Zone episode. I think you can pretty much see some of the real-life tie-ins to this episode, especially at the, what was happening at the time in America uh, with racial inequality and segregation. Um, I think it's pretty obvious by the dialogue between Janet and her doctor and even the doctor and another nurse, uh, but we'll get to that soon. Yeah, that uh, without question, that definitely comes through. And I've got a... A question right off top as we come in. The first scene is the nurse entering what looks like a, I don't know, a saloon type uh, door, right? And she comes into the room, which is odd anyway. <laughs> like the door frame is open. I've never seen that in a hospital where there's like swinging double doors as she comes in and then immediately turns to her right. Okay. And she goes behind like a screen. So this is a big controversy. Well, I don't know how big of a controversy it is on the internet, but let me ask you this, Jimbo. Do you think this nurse is wearing the proverbial makeup? When because you know that that's one emphasis in this episode, and it becomes very apparent as you go through that um, the faces of the people involved in this episode are not shown until the very end of the episode, and that is done a very I mean, awesome way. And let me let me ask you a question with a, answer your question with a okay. question. Do you think any of the faces are in the proverbial makeup Ye before the end? Yes, they are, and that's only because I have access to the research. And there were multiple actors who said um, that they were in the makeup. The nurses and doctors and so forth were in the makeup the entire episode. But this person in particular, this first nurse. Uh, who approaches? Um, oh, I can't remember. Janet. Janet, thank you, Miss Miss Tyler. I was thinking of Miss Tyler. Um, let me just read this. Uh, here's the controversy. I'll just try to make a distinction. And I, I even <laughs> I got kind of engrossed in this. I even took like screenshots and paused it and zoomed in on her face. And to me, it looks like she has a slight. Not the full regalia of makeup, but she does have some something around her mouth 
that it, it looks just slightly different. I was going to send you the pick and see what you thought, but let me just read this. Um, Go ahead. But I, but I, but but don't give away the ending yet. By keep talking about this makeup and stuff. You know what I well, mean. Well, I mean. Hopefully, again, if you've come to this podcast, you've at least watched the episode <laughs> once. You're not coming into this cold. If you've if you've ever seen a Twilight Zone, I'm sure you've seen this right. episode anyway. So. Okay, so here's the controversy right off the top as we walk in. Um, at the beginning, a nurse walks into Janet's room and her face visibly does not have the makeup-like features. This is against the norm of the fictitious world. On the contrary to the revelation that everyone has disfigured, faces the nurse in question is behind a dimly lit gauze-like screen. Periodic freeze frames and zooming in on the actress shows a vague and interrupted makeup face. I'm going to change that. The actress is indeed wearing the makeup um, of the normals, the normals in quotations. That, that would be all the doctors and nurses in the, the quote-unquote normals. But here, um, this notation is taken from, or taken from the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to the, a television classic. It says this about this particular episode. It says, All of the actors and actresses were required to wear the makeup at all times, even before the unraveling of the bandages. But there was apparently an exception. The opening scenes in Janet Tyler's room with the nurse before Serling's intro, which hopefully we'll get there. We're, we're starting out pretty slow here, but we'll get there. Uh, so this is before Serling's intro. So this is speaking about the scene that we're talking about right now in the opening scene. The actors in those particular opening scenes did not have any makeup on their faces. So this is confirmed by, you know, in the book. So there's a bit. So the Internet's wrong. So they're saying that everyone was wearing makeup, but those closest, one Martin Grahams Jr., who wrote the book about every episode, says no, there was an exception. And this nurse in particular, I think Joanna Hayes, was another exception, the, the, the nurse clerk, the secretary front desk clerk. She didn't have any makeup as well because it's there was an incident that I read about where Douglas Hayes, she had come to set and she had all of her full makeup on and he was like why did you come in full makeup? You didn't need to wear all that makeup and he had a funny line he said and the rest of the day did not go that well. He, he was giving an interview because his wife had spent all this time coming to the set with all the makeup when she didn't need to put it all on because her she wasn't a reveal as one of the normal people. She had a very small part. Jimbo. Do you know how many days this took to shoot? I do not. Please tell me. I do not. Well, no, I don't <laughs> oh, know. I'm, I just you asking, had the I'm just asking if it, you might be able to say that everybody was in their makeup if it was a one-day shoot or two-day shoot. You know what I mean? Right. So they didn't because you know how long it took to do some of that makeup stuff. But the way they did those, we'll talk about that towards the end, the way they did the normals. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting too. Yeah, so, uh, I don't know if you have that in your notes later on. I don't. Once so we get to the reveal, I'll be interested. Okay, well let me let me grab my uh, my trusty <laughs> sidekick companion book here because I thought you would have it. So let me pull this out. Real yeah, quick while you're, are you want to do this now or you want to stand by and give that information? No, no, now. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So go ahead and keep yeah, going. so basically, I was just wanting to confirm that you know the internet's wrong on that one because I think they're wrong. I don't think she's wearing any makeup that I can tell if she is in this opening scene you know i'm sorry i'm going down a big rabbit hole but this one like for some reason just caught my attention and i had to and to say that people's faces aren't shown at all is 
Probably factually incorrect because there are, there are other scenes where the doc, you, you know, when the camera pans across, you can catch a glimpse of the outline of the doctor's faces. And it's, it's not that, you know, their heads are cut off and the directors talk about that in, in other trivia that they, they didn't want it to be that abrupt. They wanted the audience to be drawn in but they didn't mm-hmm. but the director didn't want the, them to be asking themselves that question throughout the whole episode like why aren't they showing the faces they he wanted the story you know to be a front and center so they had to do it in a real strategic way where you know they would show the outlines of the faces but in certain scenes but that it wouldn't look too obvious and get distracting but i think it was strategically shot to um the way that they shot the film um, basically the use of the shadows they did, you know, like even when the one lady's like, Hey, you want a cigarette? You know, she lays the pack down and the other lady just before her face comes, you know, it goes down to get the cigarette. Or right. Whatever. Um, you know, the one scene where the doctor and then the one nurse is asking if it, if it's going to work or what's going to happen. He turns around, you know, and he's like obscured by her shoulder. Um, just a lot of the ways that they yeah. uh, shot this, I thought it was really well done. Yeah. It kept me on the edge of my seat because you didn't know what was going on. Absolutely. It was very well done. It was very strategic. And, you know, I mean, they, they pulled out all the big guns for this episode and, you know, little tricks and uh, all the camera work and, uh, you know, disguising things. Yeah, it was pretty pretty awesome. But let's talk about the, the idea for this episode. Rod says this in an interview. He says, this is one of those wild ones that I came up with while lying in bed and staring into the darkness. Sterling told a <laughs> reporter from TV uh, for TV Guide, and all of us have been there, right? Just staring at the ceiling and can't go to sleep. He says nothing precipitated it beyond the writer's instinct to what constitutes an interesting story. Also, as often as the case in the Twilight Zone, I would like to make a thematic point. The monsters are due on Maple Street was a parable having to do with prejudice. I of the Beholder, on the other hand made a comment on conformity. So keep that theme in your mind, the theme of conformity. No audience likes a writer's opinion thrust down their gullet as simply a tract. It has to be dramatized and made acceptably palatable within a dramatic form. This is how we designed Eye of the Beholder, and I think we were successful. And I would agree 100%, Rod, with that. It was very successful in the way it was carried out. So... Kind of touching on themes back in the episode as we move along. Uh, the opening scene, of course, it, it's kind of a little bit jarring as we see this woman's head completely encapsulated in bandages and wrapped super tight. She can't see out of them. She's restricted to this hospital room and relying on, you know, the nurse's care. And that's kind of our opening scene. And like Jimbo said, the light is the light and the shadows are used very well here. Um, The light is shined on um, Miss Maxine Stewart, Janet Tyler, or Janet Tyler, the character. And anything else jump out at you or any trivia you got there, Jimbo, as far as the the opening scenes go? Um, I don't believe as far as the opening scenes so far, no. So she has this dialogue with her nurse, and uh, they have some some opening remarks, and so the nurse goes back out to the nurse's station, and she, you know, talks into this old time speaker thing kind of thing that she talks to the uh, doctor and gives an update on the um, the 
patient's condition and no changes in temperature and kind of gives her updates. And here we see Miss Joanna Hayes as well at the nurse's station with her back turned. And the nurse has a really gripping line in the first uh, kind of exchange after she comes to the nurse's station. She says something to the effect, like, if that were my face, my face, I would dig a grave and, you know, yeah. I can't remember the exact line, but it's something to that effect. Like she would bury herself alive if she had to deal with that um, type of face. And then after that, we get Rod's introduction. That's really cool how they transition to the introduction, uh, too. He kind of steps out uh, in amongst all of the, the hospital there. You know, I, I I really wish that they would have had Rod's face wrapped in bandages <laughs> yeah. or... Or had the makeup on him or something, you know, at the end. You know what I mean? I just think it would have put a, put a little bit of funny spin on it. Yeah, that would be. Uh, let me give you a little trivia out of, the again, the Martin Graham's Jr. book, uh, talking about uh, avoiding the faces. The problem of how to avoid the faces of the doctors and nurses without making it too obvious with viewers that a secret was being kept from them proved to be a challenge. You could have done it all with inserts, but that would have... Uh, made the audience suspicious, Douglas Hayes said in an interview with Ben Hendren. What I wanted to do was try to hold their attention and yet not let them see any faces without having the audience say, hey, something's wrong. They're not showing faces. Um, oh, it's it's important to maybe point out here, too, with the two Mrs. Tylers, uh, this is an interesting note. So the director had planned to have Maxine Stewart who spoke all of the lines of the main character, Janet Tyler, when her head was entirely covered by bandages to dub in the single line spoken by Tyler when she is revealed to be portrayed by the actress Doug, uh, Donna Douglas. Excuse me. However, Douglas had been listening to Tyler's voice as she recorded her part and was able to imitate her so successfully that she was allowed to speak the line on camera herself. So... It, also, in other places, I don't know if I have it here or not, but when they were picking actors and actresses to play the parts of the people without the faces, they wanted, well, they wanted Maxine Stewart's um, voice in particular. I might have it here uh, somewhere in my notes. Maybe I don't. I don't know if you have it, Jimbo, but they, they wanted a, a particular type of voice, right? They wanted her mm -hmm. uh, her voice to be a little more gravelly, uh, if you will, uh, a little bit more, I don't know what the right word is, worn down, maybe. And uh, all of the, the other doctors and nurses' voices, they wanted them to be, like, calm and, and soothing. And the, he they wanted to portray them to be, like, really nice and, and inviting and helpful-type voices. And so the way that they did that, the director, I think Douglas Hayes, he went into a room and he never actually looked at the actors and actresses who were, you know, auditioning for the parts. He actually had his back turned to them and he just listened to their voices uh, in order to see how they would fit with his vision of what he wanted their voices to sound like. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but now we're in the episode, the, the doctor is, is meeting with her now and the nurse is kind of... Uh, been dismissed. I don't know if she's in the room now or not, but th again, there the dialogue and the script in this is just man, it's just outstanding. Like um, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just really um, great dialogue here uh, as they have this exchange bedside. 
Jimbo, any any right, trivia? Are you, are you ready? For yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. We're getting ready to dive into some of the heart of the, the episode. Yeah, yeah. So, Eric, this is where um, I posed a question to you before we started because I didn't want to put you on the spot. and wanted to see if you wanted to cover this part. Mm-hmm. So um, I asked you, do you think there is an underlying tone of racial inequality due to the times that this was filmed? Um, the Civil Rights Movement uh, pretty much took off in 1961. Uh, right, I seen some. I did a little bit of research. I didn't really dive into, but I know in 19 January, I think in 1961, all the way through November of that year, um, there was the uh, uh, people that were eating at the uh, all-white restaurant. Uh, there was the people getting kicked out of school. Uh, there was uh, bus movements, and it was it was angering a lot of people in the South. So. Here's here's my question, or here's here's my uh, observations from this talk that the doctor and Janet is having at this point. Janet uses the term segregated, and she also uses the term ghetto for freaks. Uh, the doctor uh, then responds with something about uh, living life among normal people. And then Janet um, also states, uh, well, you mean people who are different than people who are normal um, so as you can see, the doctor is saying, look, you know, you've been here 11 times now and we've tried to fix you and fix you, but you know, uh, we're just basically, it's, you're not normal. And I think, um, for me with Jana being under the bandages, I think that Rod was basically saying in a subliminal message roundabout way that, Hey, We've covered our eyes to the racial inequality that's going on in America. It's time to take the bandages off and treat everybody as equal. Um, That's just an observation I had uh, based upon what I've seen so far in this episode. Um, Because here, I think in the next scene, uh, when the doctor is talking to the nurse, um, and she's like, well, do you think it's going to work and all that? And he's like, look, he's like, I just don't understand. He says, I've seen her face. I've seen the real face of that lady, and it's a human face. And uh, he said, why shouldn't people allowed to be different? And the nurse goes, uh, you, you better hush up because you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> you know what I mean? right. Basically, because that's not what we, you know, you're going to get, uh, the wrong people are going to hear this and you're going to basically be in trouble. So I don't think it's a far stretch saying that there are racial inequalities that were brought out uh, specifically for this movie, even though. This episode is not about racial inequality. I think you can draw from that conclusion, maybe uh, as like a side story, backstory to this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely would agree. Those themes are definitely present. And going back to the original theme of conformity, uh, Rod just masterfully weaves all of those things. Uh, here's what I wrote. Uh, this is toward the end of my notes, but I'll go ahead and bring those up because you introduced those thoughts and ideas, Jimbo, is that uh, key themes for me were... Uh, racism, and I take this right out of the episode. Uh, Miss Tyler says, "Congregated? You mean segregated? Right? That's a line straight right. from the episode." Uh, I think um, other key themes are disability, extinction mm-hmm. of undesirables, conformity, normal quote unquote quotations, normal people, beauty, where ugliness is a crime, um, and power. Uh, the state rules, right? The the great leader on the mm-hmm. television. Privilege is also another theme. So I think, uh, well, and man, he touched all the bases in this particular episode when it comes to you know those topics. But uh, let's meet the two Mrs. or actually it's Miss Tyler's, if you will. Let me give you a little bit of background and trivia for them. 
Uh, let's first meet Donna Douglas. She says in an interview, I was a newcomer from New York, recalled Douglas. They were looking for a woman of exceptional beauty, and they picked me. Looking back, I can express how proud... Yeah, that was a stretch, right? Uh, there's a, <laughs> a beautiful right. woman. So she says, looking back, I can express how proud I was to be part of the show. It was fascinating how they put that together. The flesh-colored makeup on the nurses and doctors. They put makeup on me, too. But I don't know why, since I was supposed to be under the bandages. I don't know uh, why they had some someone different underneath the bandages. I would have done that. I guess it was the woman's voice that they were going after, but I had the same voice. So you kind of pick up a little tinge of like, man, why, why do they need two people? I could have, I could have done this all myself. But again, Maxine Stewart's voice is, uh, you know, it's very, I don't know if necessarily iconic, but she did have a long history in radio too. So her voice is, you know, unmistakable. So let's, uh, let's see what Maxine Stewart has to say. She says, Ethel Wynett was a friend of mine at the time and she hired me for any show she was involved with. So this lady Ethel must have been involved obviously with the Twilight Zone. And she says, she was a deer recalled Maxine. I was the victim under the bandages who was the most beautiful woman. I always had trouble crying tears on television, such as Philco Television Playhouse, but I cried tears under the bandages. I was into the role so much. They had me uh, come back later to loop my voice to the film, and that sound studio was MGM. I could not see anything with the bandages around my face, uh, so the cast, or someone, I can't remember, helped me move about, and I had to go to the bathroom once it was one time, and it was embarrassing. So she was talking about uh, she had to go to the restroom when she was in full bandage regalia, and some people had to help her get to the bathroom. So uh, those are the two Miss Tylers you heard from them and their experience uh, as far as the episode goes. So moving along, uh, again... Um, now we're at the exchange, and this takes up a pretty large portion of the episode, too, the exchange between the doctor and nurse. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that there was, uh, I don't know, I got this sense that the relationship between the doctor and nurse was a little bit closer. Maybe she was the head nurse. Did you did you kind of pick up on that a little bit? Like, she's really concerned that he's not going to get too involved, you know, uh, well, it's, emotionally it's, with the patient, and you know, I don't know if that's normal or not. But. No, I I just think you know. I mean, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I think obviously, um, <laughs> if if you were a doctor and you had a uh, let's say a, a head nurse that was always in the ER with you, always in surgery with you, you know, she is your or he. Let's be honest. Yeah. Or, uh, they are your uh, right-hand man. They are there to make sure that you yeah. do not make mistakes. They are there to help count the tools as you are taking them out of people so you don't leave any sewn up inside <laughs> of them. So they are there as basically your backup, your confidant, and they, you probably spend more just about as much time with them as you do your own family. Right. So technically, they are technically, I would say, family. You know, it's your work family. Yeah. Um, but I, I I don't think I got the sense that it was like a, a love, like a yeah enduring love affair, love type of situation. I think it was just re- mutual respect for the job that they uh, did. Yeah, I could have been reading a little bit more into that. There was definitely a closeness there that came through in those delivery of the lines that, like you just expressed, that they were, yeah, they were like family. They, they were very close in their relationship. So um, that was something that stuck out to me in that in that scene there. So now we've moved on to the scene, the big reveal scene, right? Where they start taking the bandages off. 
and it seems, I don't know how it was for you, but it seemed like it took forever. Like, you know, this reveal, it really is crescendoing, you know, to this big reveal. And they did that very well. And I was just like, man, hurry up and get these you, bandages do you, off. Do you know how they did No, that? go ahead and tell me, because I know you got your book let out me, here. Yeah, let me, please. Let me find my, my page in my trusty companion. Um, matter of fact, I might just go ahead and try to wing it if I can't find it real quick. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was just like, okay, so they take a little bit off and then they stop and the doctor asks her a few questions, is. you know, can you see, you know, how's the light? A, go ahead. It says, Hayes recalls a particular challenge of the crucial scene when the bandages are being removed from Janet Tyler's head. While they were unwrapping her, I wanted the effect of her point of view as the layers of gauze became less and less until little by little she was able to see outlines of shapes and so forth. I told George Clemens what I wanted. I said, I want to have something in front of the camera so it would be from her point of view. Well, that was one of the advantages of rehearsing with the crew before we shot because Clemens got a fishbowl and hung it in front of the camera and wrapped the fishbowl. So the lens was shooting from inside the fishbowl, and when the bandages were unwrapped over the fishbowl, you saw layer by layer beginning to get less and less until you begin to see outlines. So they used a fishbowl, <laughs> wrapped the fishbowl in bandages. Oh, did they really? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it stuck the camera inside I, of it. So when I see it, it now as I'm on this scene. Yeah, I can kind of see how that works because, uh, yeah, that's pretty neat. <laughs> Ain't that crazy? Yeah. Um, so again, boy, this takes quite a few minutes to get the full unwrapping and the doctor, you know, he's reassuring her like, you know, this is your 11th time. Well, I think he might've said that before, but he's like, if it hasn't, yeah, if it hasn't received, if it hasn't achieved the desired result, you know, you can't be hysterical on me. Basically he's kind of giving her a little warning and stuff. Right. Um, which is kind of funny because She's the one that's pretty much calm, and then <laughs> doctor and nurses are no change, no change. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> they're like, the first and one, they're all, and all the nurses are like, ah, <laughs> yeah. And then we see Donna Douglas emerge, uh, a beautiful blonde hair. She she has her hands on her head, and then she looks straight up at the camera, and then they sort of push her into the corner of the the room with their you know with their backs facing the camera, and then here's the big reveal. The doctor turns over his left shoulder and he has a pig face. They're all <laughs> disfigured faces, and Donna Douglas. Well, well I, and they got the little Elvis lip going on. You yeah. Know, hey, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They got the Elvis kind of lip, and then she runs into the. Now, have you met the leader? No, this is the first time we meet the leader. And no, no, no. I do believe that they had it on the TV. Earlier, oh, right. He was. Shadows. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. He was all shadowed out, or the, and the camera was far away from, you know, his face. Lots of flat screen. I mean, th can you imagine seeing this though? Too like just, I, like seeing flat screens, like TVs and stuff in the episode, and being right. a kid and be like, whoa, what is this? Like some kind of futuristic, you know, new world kind of thing where everything's turned on its head, and what we see is. You know, everything's upside down. Like, uh, what what we view as beautiful, we would view Donna Douglas as beautiful. And, but everything's upside down, and she's not normal. And she's considered ugly in this strange upside-down world. And so there's a couple scenes of her trying to run away in the hallways and stuff. And then she bursts through what looks like a lobby, right? And she sees another one of her kind. And what was his name again? Walter Smith, right? And this dude is 
Mr. Handsome. He's like Mr. Universe, right? And them two are going <laughs> to go off to their the beauty colony together. Um, and the doctor's kind of like reassuring her, and don't be afraid. And, uh, you know, Mr. Smith is not going to hurt you at all. And... Yeah, I I just I'm just blown away because like the first time I saw this, this has got to be one of the greatest twists in Twilight Zone history. Um, you just mm-hmm. are not expecting this at all. Well, uh, speaking of the uh, the old pig faces, do you want me to go ahead and tell you how they actually got the pig faces? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I thought for sure you would have this in your your notes, but I guess not. So okay, here we go. Um. Essential to the credibility of the piece was the makeup revealed at the climax to be both repulsive and convincing. Production manager Ralph Nelson saw that we got the time, William Tuttle recalls. Now this is something that I can't recall any any of the other television productions doing. They'd come in the day before and expect a miracle for the next morning. From the beginning, Hayes and Tuttle worked together closely. As a matter of fact, said Hayes, the first problem of the makeup on that was that this is going to be too expensive. Fortunately, Hayes had had experience in this area. I had started as a cartoonist at Walt Disney's and had been an art director and so on. When we did those faces for Eye of the Beholder, Tuttle's, Tuttle had just done the time machine and he had created those Morlocks. When he told me the problem as far as cost, I went down to his department and I saw some of the pieces that he had put the Morlocks together with and I said, Bill, why can't we do something like that? Just make some pieces and paste them on. The idea was sound, and the final makeup consisted of variations of a brow piece and a large piece that covered the nose, cheeks, and upper lips. Uh, there were cast, or they were cast in foam rubber and attached to the actors' faces with spirit gum to remove them. Acetone was used. The physical appearance of the uglies also involved a collaboration between Tuttle and Hayes. Doug came up with and got his fingers in the clay, Tuttle remembers. We'd modeled some things, and then he'd take a look at a, and offer some suggestions, and it sort of evolved from that. As for the initial concept, Tuttle explains, the idea was to make them look like pigs with the big nostrils and the pig-like nose. Hayes elaborates, the important thing about the group of people was that although they had to look slightly different, they had to conform. They had to be the same species. They couldn't all be different monsters. All in all, about 12 actors portrayed the uglies. We didn't make masks of each one, says Tuttle, but we took three or four different ones and modeled them so they looked different. And then before they'd cast the people that we tried them on, see if one would fit one another. In other words, we didn't have to do 12 different ones. On a thing like this, the more distortion you get, the better. In the end, Hayes was glad that um, what they was originally planning had been too expensive. They were thinking of doing complete makeups on everything, and actually it was better not to because the individual characteristics of the actors could still show up, their cheekbones, their jawlines, their ears. Another thing is that by doing that, I was able to photograph the backs of heads and ears and things like that, which was perfectly normal. It was only frontally that they looked different. What emerged was a makeup was that was horrifying, unique, and unforgettable. Wow, that's really interesting. The amount of effort and time and thought that goes into to making just those, you know, masks, if you will, the, the pig masks. Um, right, so, so technically they didn't have to put makeup on everybody, and they only had to model. They had 12 people in it, but they only had to do... Th- three or four models and they could use the same model 
just on the they had to match them up to the other people's right. face, so that it was a lot cheaper. Yeah, that that's wow, that's really impressive. I don't know where this came in under under or over budget either, but wow, with yeah, that's that's really impressive, and it makes me think of the the director of American Werewolf in London. His name escapes me now, but uh, I think I read something that he was around fifteen or so at the time when he saw this episode, and he was able to he was able to replicate the the mask um makeup and stuff and he uh, i can't remember his name you guys you mentioned him on the episode et as well um the director of american werewolf in london he's a you know he's a famous director slash um makeup artist like ah, terrible i can't remember his name now but he he used that in, in later years he he somehow perfected and mm-hmm. and was able to replicate um that makeup so iconic for sure um so Here's some general trivia that probably didn't necessarily fit in anywhere in the episode, but the leader's hand movements were meant to resemble the <laughs> gestures made often during speeches by Adolf Hitler. Again, another reference so to a, Adolf Hitler. Once again, we have another jab at Adolf yeah, Hitler. Yeah. Um, we already talked about this a little bit. Oh, I'll go ahead and repeat it. The episode features two actors who would appear later in TV hit series. Donna Douglas as Ellie Mae Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies in 1962. And Edson Stroll, who played Walter Smith. Uh, he played a character named Virgil Edwards in McHale's Navy in 1962. I don't know if I've ever seen maybe an episode of McHale's Navy. Maybe one or two. Um, one of the highest rated episodes of the original Twilight Zone series. Uh, that's without uh, question. Uh, and then we already talked about the fact that the, no character's face was clearly shown for nearly 19 minutes, the first 19 minutes of the episode. Um, so those are just some general trivia. Jimbo, do you have any general trivia that you would like to... Yeah, uh, because CBS consulted different prints over the years for syndication packages, the closing credits vary from side to side depending on what TV station is used for what version, and this made a complicated job for filmmakers. In the Twilight Zone's original DVD release, the syndicated version was marketed as an alternate version. Edson Stroll also appeared in another Twilight Zone episode uh, later on dealing with body transformation uh, titled The Trade-Ins, which I'm sure we'll get there, where he was the youthful body an elderly man sought to obtain. And also the famous episode uh, is referenced in Futurama, the cartoon, uh, season 3, episode 11, with a shot-for-shot recreation of the big reveal recreated, recreated when Leela's bandages are taken off. Yeah, this has definitely been parodied. That I <laughs> a lot, lot. Uh, SNL with Pamela Anderson. I think they did something in the '90s. Family Guy, which I did a deep dive. I I know The Simpsons parodied it. It said that Family Guy on the internet. It said that they parodied this exact episode. I can't find it. I saw an episode where they parodied the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, but not this particular episode. But let, let's hear from a fan letter. Uh, on October 25th, 1961, Lynn Anderson in San Francisco wrote to Serling explaining a commercial promoting the television program, which featured numerous close-up shots of the monsters from the Twilight Zone episode and the devil from the Howling Man and Nick of Time. The commercial was being shown at the end of children's TV programs in the morning and during a circus <laughs> <laughs> during a circus show. 
uh, very early in the evening. As a result of viewing this uh, macabre presentation, my son has had various nightmares involving these horrible faces as, and is frightened in his room at night with the lights off. He says often that he's afraid of these people and describes the commercial. So the letter was forwarded to Serling from uh, CBS, and on November 13, 1961, he sent a reply explaining that the Twilight Zone is scheduled for 10 o'clock Friday evenings, a time frame designed for adult viewing. Without my knowledge, and certainly without my support, film clips of this program have been shown as promotional material during the daylight hours. I deeply regret this. Uh, or I deeply regret that this has been the case, but unfortunately have no control whatsoever over the network's promotional planning and programming. Please accept my apologies for this, and I am sending a copy of your letter to the network here on the coast in the hopes that this particular film clip will be taken out of use during the daytime hours. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, a, a distraught and upset mom was... Uh, you know, having trouble with her son who was having nightmares because of nightmares. commercial pro promos. That, that kind of sounds like uh, Serling probably would have just disregarded it and made it a new Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Know? I mean, he saw something on TV. And, <laughs> and I found the name. Uh, his name, and he was a makeup artist. His name was Rick Baker, whose work was uh, responsible for such movies as An American Werewolf in London in 1981 and Stroke uh, 1984. I haven't seen Stroke, but American Werewolf in London, I saw that as a kid and it scarred me for life. I was like that kid from San Francisco. <laughs> I was scared forever i saw i remember i saw it at a friend's house and i'll never forget that i was terrified after i saw that i was way too young uh he said he was influenced this is rick baker he was influenced early by the television episode and after viewing the telecast at the age of 15 he managed to reproduce the same makeup uh job from this episode um being one of the most popular episodes of the series, this episode has been referred to and spoofed by a number, number of television programs. We talked about that uh, as well. Um, anything else, Jimbo? I think that concludes like my general trivia. Yeah, that's all the general notes I have. All right, let's move on to questions and observations. Um, we already talked about the key themes of conformity, racism. We, we kind of... You know, rolled that out at the beginning of the episode and kind of set the table for everyone as far as that goes. But I, I did have one question as it pertains to the episode. One thing that kind of threw me is why isn't she allowed to go outside? I have a theory of why she can't go outside. Um, and here's my theory. And I ask a question with another question. Is the outside symbolic of freedom? Freedom to either be different in appearance or in thought. That's my question. Because remember, she asked to go outside, and they won't let her go outside. She wants to smell the flowers. She wants to, you know, breathe the fresh air. But they they won't well, let her. Well, they they won't even let her. They won't even let her look out the window or open the window. Ah, if you remember. interesting that. Do you remember that? Yeah. So it's interesting that you bring up the window because this is an original with me. But I heard this on another podcast, and I thought this was a very interesting insight. It says the buildings as seen from her hospital room, are very linear, linear excuse me, and orderly, which is consistent with the theme of conformity. I didn't pick up on that, but if you, it's true. If you go and look at the, the window, all those buildings you know, are very linear, very orderly, and it's, yeah, uh, it, that's kind of a cool well, little uh, subliminal feature. So, so, so here's my observation. I think the reason that they won't let her go outside, I think you can go ahead and chalk that back up to that she's been there 11 times. 
They know what she looks like. They know she is different. There's no way that they are going to let her go out and enjoy the same freedoms that they have because she is different. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the inequality that was in America at that time. Yeah. There, I mean, you can't eat at the same restaurant. You can't uh, go to the same bathroom. Right. You can't go to the same school. I think I think all that plays back into the part of this episode. I think the more you look at this episode, the deeper it gets. Yeah. You could definitely mine the depths. It could go on for a while. But, yeah, I just thought that might be due to it represents the outside represents freedom to be different either in appearance or thought. And that just kind of dovetails with what you just said, Jaboa, as far as thematically and conformity and all the things when we wrap it all up. They just did an amazing job of wrapping it up and all all those ideas and putting them uh, right in front of you with a bow on top. But, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. well, very well done. Anything else? I just think that this is one of the greatest episodes of The Twilight Zone uh, that you're you're ever going to see. I, I, matter of fact, it might be one of the greatest television episodes in history of any television show. I think uh, a lot can be learned from it. I think the twist in this is amazing, and I think... Um, after wearing a mask for almost a year, year and a half, that when we took off our mask, we all kind of looked like the doctors and nurses <laughs> at the end of this episode. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I would echo those statements. Uh, I think we're in complete unison on this particular episode. It, it's outstanding. Uh, it ranks up there as one of the highest episodes. And again, it may be the highest episode in the entire series for me. It might rank up there as number one. Uh, it's hard to get any... This is the, really the essence of the, what the Twilight Zone is intended to be. It's an iconic episode. I don't think I would change a thing about it. It's just, yeah, tip-tops. I will say this. There there are two episodes that probably brought, brought me into the Twilight Zone. Now, I like some episodes more than others, uh, but the original two that, that drug me into the Twilight Zone is this episode, which hooked me, and then the one with William Shatner, Flight at 20,000 Feet. Those two are the ones that I remember as a kid that I was like, wow, I love these episodes. You know, I love the Twilight Zone. So those are the, the two iconic ones and probably two of the most highest rated episodes, I think at 9.1 on IMDb, that drug me into the Twilight Zone universe. Now, with that being said, this is still one of my favorites. We'll have to, There has some that we've already covered in season one that I absolutely love now as an adult that I hadn't seen when I was a kid. Um which we'll find out at the very end of this when we get through all five seasons and we do our top ten list of all seasons. Mm-hmm. You will find out where we place certain episodes and why. But for me, this is the essential Twilight Zone episode. If you could only have uh, somebody watch one episode of the Twilight Zone to see if they like it or get them hooked, this would be the episode. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think we've rattled on long enough for once Eric and I actually agree on an episode that doesn't come uh, often, as we'll testify next week when we cover Nick of Time. <laughs> so, with that being said, uh, we'll see you next week. This episode's coming to a close, and that's right. And cut. Now, the questions that come to mind where is this place, and when is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm? You want an answer? The answer is, it doesn't make any difference. Because the old saying happens to be true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In this year or a hundred years hence. On this planet or wherever there is human life, perhaps out amongst the stars. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Lesson to be learned in the Twilight Zone.